I'm Jeff Krasnow, and welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune Podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. Okay, so today on the show, we're combining a couple of conversations that I've had with a brilliant actor and comedian-cum-spiritualist, Russell Brand. Now, you may know him principally from the silver screen. Russell has starred in Forgetting Sarah Marshall, the remake of Arthur, and many hilarious comedy specials. I know Russell from his work in recovery. In 2017, he penned the book Recovery, Freedom from Our Addictions, and last year, I was fortunate enough to collaborate with Russell on numerous recovery retreats, a live, hilarious, if mildly profane, stage show interpreting the 12-step, and an online program here on Commune. Russell really opened my eyes to the staggering global scale of our addiction problem. An estimated 300 million people throughout the world have an alcohol or drug use disorder. Every year worldwide, alcohol is the cause of one death out of every 20. Indeed, society and culture gives us every opportunity to be addicted, particularly to alcohol. I got married. Let's party. I got divorced. Let's drink our troubles away. I got that big new job. Meet you at the bar. I got fired. Pour me a whiskey. My candidate won. Let's drink. My candidate lost. Let's drink. In 2017, doctors dished out a whopping 200 million opioid prescriptions. Is it any wonder that 2.1 million Americans are addicted to fentanyl, OxyContin, and the like? Our addictions, however, don't end with alcohol, opioids, heroin, and crack. There are dozens of more insidious ways that we form unhealthy attachments. According to a recent study, researchers estimate that 6% of the world's population is addicted to the Internet. That's 420 million people. And then there's gambling, pornography, codependency, work, sugar, seeking the approval of others, Instagram, shopping, pick your poison. In fact, Russell might posit that very few of us are free from some variety of addiction, and that the source of our addiction stems from a spiritual disconnection to a higher power. Instead of looking inward and cultivating our spiritual life, we're looking for connection by fulfilling our desires in the material world through drinking, drugs, pornography, and accumulating stuff. So on today's show, Russell outlines the 12-step system that has pulled him and millions of others out of addiction. We explore the flexibility and versatility of the program to address all manners of addiction, as well as the importance of mentorship and community. In part two of my conversation, we discuss whether the 12-step can be utilized as a tool to heal society. Can we use the same model to collectively recognize we have a problem, commit to change, undertake a thorough inventory, recognize patterns, and create a culture of service. In essence, can we take the 12-step one step further from personal to communal? So if you're interested in trying Russell's recovery course on Commune for free for six days, go to onecommune.com recovery. I hope you enjoy my chat with Russell Brand. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and welcome to Kamiya.
So when people think of addiction, they think of alcoholism, heroin addiction, crack, cocaine, but you have a much broader understanding of addiction. Yes, it was shown to me. It's that, I think it's the relationship between the inner and outer worlds. And those most obvious things, like of heroin, alcoholism, substance misuse, they are merely the most ev evident form of addiction. I think it's an attachment, a belief that the material and external world can somehow resolve the problems of your inner life. Put more simply, addiction is a behavior that you would like to stop, and when you can't, when you try to, you cannot. Addiction begins with pain and it ends with pain. You are in pain, you practice whatever it is you do to get you away from the pain, whether it's pornography or food or sex or drugs, and then it leads to more pain and then the cycle begins again. So the, I'm increasingly, as I am taught more about the nature of addiction, less and less interested in the object. It's almost better to be a crackhead because if you are a crackhead, it's pretty clear what the problem is because you're taking crack. So it's a good entry point into the conversa conversation. If someone's taking crack and they go, I don't know what the problem is, could it be the crack? <laughs> no! Or if someone's, you know, it's like, so, but if it's someone, codependency, toxic relationships, work, you know, it's, you can, they'll deny it all the live long day. Think about it, I found myself in context where various forms of my addictive behavior were lionized. You know, I go, like if you're a 20 year old at a drama school in London and you are a heroin addict and you drink, that's an advantage. People think, oh my God, this guy, he's crazy. Something. Yeah, until, until it's not, until it's like, yeah, all right, there's a lot of sick everywhere and he's breaking all the windows. Yeah, well, there's this subtle, insidious form of addiction, like perhaps looking at myself in the mirror, just wanting to be liked all the time. Oh boy, that's exhausting. Yeah, but it's a good, isn't it? Because it's a signal that there's something in you that wants to be fed and nurtured. And the good news about the 12 steps and it's, that sounds kind of Christian. The goodness is the answers are coming. <laughs> the Lord is present. He is within. The resurrection will happen and it won't be over there. It will be in here. It will rise again. So do you think then that addiction is really sort of a spiritual affliction on some level? Like because it is so broad and it addresses so many pieces of our behavior, it's, it's in essence like we're chasing this desire, this need, but it's based in the material world and, this, and the material world can't make us happy. So then we just keep going back for more. Is that, is that your understanding? Is that your belief? Yes. Yeah. And so what then is recovery look like? For me, recovery looks like the 12 steps. It looks like an admission of a problem, the belief that the problem and your attitude towards it can change a willingness to accept help, both from other people, and to hand over your will and your control, and in my case, a kind of belief and acceptance of a higher power, a different type of consciousness. It looks like making an inventory and sharing that inventory with someone else, being willing to admit that you have problems and being willing to have those problems removed. It looks like step seven we're at now, being uh, humbly asking for those problems to be removed, a sincere commitment to change, then the, uh, an inventorying process that is no longer about the self, but about others, people that have been harmed, and a willingness to make amends to them. And then 10, 11, 12, the final three steps, remain conscious and aware all times. Every, your life is in the moment that you're living in. 
Step 11, conscious contact with a higher power. Through prayer and meditation, we connect with our own understanding of God. Because in my, as we've discussed already, although it may be only in mine, available with subtitles, that the solution to this problem is a spiritual one, a connection to a higher power. Having had this realisation, and this is significant, and we're a departure from most insular and I would say somewhat narcissistic theology or practice is um, pertinent, is step 12. Having had a spiritual awakening, we carry this message and we serve others. So for me, that's what recovery looks like. There's, there, are, there are translations and interpretations and there are tweaks, but for me, the principles not only apply in 12-step um, methodology, but also I've seen comparative ideas in Islam, Christianity, Buddhism, even sort of secular and materialist ideologies in the end. Has to be a sort of, an, or even psychiatry, say, an acceptance that there's an aspect of yourself that has to be overcome. And right now, for you personally, are you living in the vibration of step 12? I mean, I see what you're doing. You're putting yourself out there to essentially help others. Is that what provides meaning on the other side of recovery? I don't see myself as being so far down the path of recovery that I am in this luxurious position of being out to help others. In many senses, I'm in the same position I was in when I was a crack and heroin addict. The program works, so I continue to work the program. I suppose, in a way, because I've got a particular set of skills, I am now alloying those skills with what I've learned. I mean, primarily as a communicator and an entertainer, uh, communicate is a good word to mispronounce, huh? So, um, so uh, you know, I don't see myself as evolved or advanced beyond the 12 steps because, in a sense, there was nothing that needed to be evolved or advanced. I just m needed to recognise that what I thought was a yearning for heroin or other people's approval or fame or money was this uh, requirement for a connection to God, as mm -hmm. someone, uh, a teacher of mine once said, or forms of desire are the inappropriate substitute for the desire to be at one with God. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's good, isn't it? And he told me that when I was quite young and it took me ages to listen. I was 27. And so you wrote, you wrote a quite brilliant book on mentorship. Um, Thanks. I've enjoyed it. I've listened to it in the car on my trips. And obviously you've taken this quite seriously because here you are, you know, working with groups of people on a, on a regular basis, trying to help them essentially realize these things that you have been fortunate in, in some ways enough to realize. Can you talk about the importance of mentorship a bit and, and how it's baked into the 12 step, what it means for you? Whilst the 12 steps can be worked in isolation, the intention of some of the original forms of literature of 12 step uh, philosophy was that it could be worked in alienation and isolation for people that were just geographically isolated. It, in my experience, and I think this is common to people that have a 12 step program, is best worked communally for a number of reasons. One, the acknowledgement that other people have got lives and problems and the sort of belief that your own life and problem is the centre of the galaxy is a peculiar, if understandable one, due to the way that the senses work. And that, but particularly having someone, as it were, upstream, a mentor, a teacher, or in my case, multiple, but one in particular with the 12-step programme, is like the acknowledgement that 
I don't run the show of my life anymore. I don't, if I like, you know, look, all of these things for me is a process of negotiation and going backwards and forwards and thinking, no, I can do it the old way again. I still have the problems that I've always had to a degree. That's what's somewhat complex about this philosophy. But when I'm afraid or I feel inadequate or like I've got problems and I'm thinking, oh, this is what I'm going to do to solve these problems. I talk to someone else and I say, I've got this problem. I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? Right. And my sponsor or mentor, without fail, will say, well, you know, I don't have any advice or an opinion. But my experience <laughs> is that when you do things like this, X, 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 and it's usually boils down to don't fucking do that, you idiot. <laughs> so it's a bit of an ego check. Yeah. And uh, yeah, an ego check and a sort of an acknowledgement of the limitations of the ego, you know, of like, or, you know, maybe I don't know enough about psychiatry to use the term ego accurately, but whatever is the sort of the parameters, the circumference the, of the ecosystem of my intelligence, the kind of decisions that, that I make, the kind of relationships that I form, the kind of mistakes that I make, if I'm to alter that, it's good to have some external input. One, like from people that are further down the path than me, people that have been clean and sober for longer than I have. And two, from a system, a program, a method that runs at odds and is applicable to my condition, but entirely distinct from my condition. So when I'm thinking about this is what I want to do, I check with sponsor, check with program, you know, like, What's beautiful about this, and as I learn more about it, as I'm taught more about it, what I recognise is whatever it is that's happening in my life that is problematic for me, I can apply this system. I can acknowledge there's a problem, believe that it can get better, ask for help, inventory it and see what's going on, what patterns of thought and, and in our language defects of character have taken part. I can make a sincere commitment to change. I can list people that I've harmed, be willing to make amends to them. And the process goes on. 10, stay aware. 11, increase conscious contact of higher power. 12, be of service. What I feel like the 12-step program does is it takes you from unconscious, unaware, and places you in conscious and aware. And it does it again and again in the cloudy, murky mess of drug addiction to not drug addict. Obsession with other people's approval to not obsession with other people's approval. Now, something that's as subtle and as behaviorally and socially acceptable as and indeed encouraged as other people's approval, I can come in and out of that. But at least now I know where I'm going to be and a sponsor uh, and a mentor is a, a great place to go. I've had this experience, it made me feel like this and he knows you know, where the bodies are buried. He's seen my, my step four and five, he's seen my big inventory of my past and he's able to say, well, if you're thinking of getting into a relationship like this, you might want to consider how that compares to this relationship that you were previously in. Yeah, yeah no, it's interesting. I mean, once you've done some degree of work, right? You've read and you've meditated and you've studied. You know that you're, that you should be living from this place of love, from your infinite soul, from your divine nature all the time. And you, you wake up and you're like, okay, well, I'm going to do that. I'm committed to doing that. I know that that's going to bring me true happiness, contentedness, or at least that's what I think I am. Uh, but every day we're drawn into this, this, you know, ego vacuum of, okay, well, no, actually, I am what this person thinks of me. I am what I do. I am my job. I'm disconnected from others. I'm in competition from others. I'm separate from God. And in a way, your mentor can check that, that behavior. Yes. 
is a vital component to have, like it really is to have people that you trust that you've selected you know prudently that have a program of their own because as it said i was taught if you have, uh, are listening to somebody else and what they're telling you doesn't come from the program you're listening to a drug addict yeah. you know so me without this program i'm a drug addict that's what i am uh, my solution to the problems of life i'll take drugs life is painful trust no one take drugs with the program, I am be of service to others. We are all one consciousness. I'm a different person. I'm a different person. But that guy is still in there, you know. So uh, like Churchill said, no plan survives human contact. So don't be disappointed when this program doesn't immediately turn you into St. Francis of Assisi. You know, I'm still me. But what I know is, is that I know there's another direction to go in. I know that the solution isn't, oh, if I can just get everyone to like me, then it's going to be okay. I've tried that. It doesn't work. Yeah. One thing you talked about, your, your first mentor, I believe his name was Chip Summers. Yes, Chip. Um, and I found it actually really, really interesting how you described sort of the ideal conditions for, me for mentorship to thrive. Can you talk about that a little bit? Like, what are those ideal conditions um, for mentorship to be successful? I would have to say that the ideal conditions for mentorship to thrive is surrender and acceptance and honesty, open-mindedness and willingness. These are the ideal conditions. When I'm dealing with people with addiction issues, in a sense it becomes a relief once you're in the program, once you're on the other side, because I go, oh, you're a heroin addict, are you? Well, here are the things you need to do. I don't want to do that. Okay. So what about you? Have you got a problem? Yeah. <laughs> you know, because like this is not me. This is not my idea. This is, uh, you know, relatively new for a theology that's going to become as influential as I believe it's going to become. It's, you know, 70, 80 years old. It's derived, of course, as I'm sure you're aware, from the theology of William James, the psychiatry of Carl Jung, first century Christianity, as espoused by like Emmett Fox. And there are some linguistic and uh, I would say nomenclature problems as a result of that. I'm interested in the ordering of the vocabulary so it becomes more appropriate and accessible. I'm not about demystification, but remystification. Mm. God is present in this. There's nothing without God in this, but it's a heavily heavily cargoed word these sure. days. Yeah. I think your point around the attitudes that a mentee must have is honesty, open-mindedness, willingness. You also, I think, describe the 12-step, at least, as very conducive to membership, to mentorship, because there's a clear end result, right? Yeah, man. I mean, there's a clear end result. From taking heroin to not taking heroin is pretty clear and pretty radical transformation if you're you know, it's like to be addicted to heroin or anything. The other thing is, is that there is, whilst the principles can be loosely worn and can be practiced in accordance with the individual to a degree, you know, they are protean, they are not rigid. Like anything that's real, it's got proper uh, balls. It's not gonna fall over as soon as there's a stiff breeze. It also, what I've realized, has got built into it a sort of protection against like the cult of personality or whatever. Mm. You know, like me continually, I'm acknowledging, what do I know? I don't know nothing. It's the principles that are important. You'll notice being, as we're having this conversation in Los Angeles, that a lot of cults don't go that way. <laughs> a lot of cults start with, hey man, peace and love, and end with, let's put some poison in the salad bar. A lot of cults start with peace and love and end with, I want to have sex with all of the people that are in this cult. Now, what I, 
now know is there a kind of certain absolutes that my job is to be of service to others. That don't mean I'm going to spend my whole life being of service to others because I'm flawed. But I know that if I'm not being of service of others, of others, the results are not guaranteed now. We're out of the territory that I know I'm safe in. So if I'm thinking in this situation, I want this, I want this. Okay, good luck because we've tried that method, you know. Yeah. So last genre of questions because I know that you're hosting a big group. Um, I want to talk a little bit about yoga and kind of spiritual and embodied practices um, because the 12-step was obviously very, very influential for you from a spiritual perspective. But I wonder what the relationship is between the 12-step and yoga and a little bit about the importance of yoga and your personal healing journey. Step 11 of the 12 steps is increase conscious contact with God of our understanding. The point of yoga is to prepare the body, you know, I'm talking about uh, um, asana yoga, prepare the body for meditative states. So there's an obvious corollary there around step 11. My personal experience is I started doing yoga when I was in treatment to get off drugs the first time, like not out of place, the place I got clean wasn't that, I'm proud to say, fancy. But like I started doing the yoga classes outside and like so it took over. My mum always said, you should be doing yoga. I've got like sort of dark memories of people always telling me the answer was gonna be meditation for me and spirituality, but I plowed on with that heroin and crack and other people's approval and all that stuff. So yoga, why I like yoga is because it's an embodied physical practice and this, the body is part of it. And increasingly I think that the line between consciousness, the body, the spirit and the mind is an imaginary one. I mean, I can't find an exact point where neurology is distinct from the nervous system. You know, I don't know where that line is. I don't think there is a line. So for me, yoga, I know your man's into the Kundalini. I love that stuff. I was well into that for a while. I've not done it so much lately. I've not done as much anything lately because I've got two very young daughters and my That's life That's a is, form of yoga right there. Yeah, for the, pra for the patience and the surrender. Yeah, there's a lot of that going on, I tell you. Um, but what I do, like I had in some senses neglected my body in the first part of my life. I didn't know how to inhabit it. My personal, like, um, like my personal practices now, some yoga always, I'm glad that I did enough Ashtanga yoga that I'm now, it's always a place I can go. I can practice on my own primary series. And if I'm in somewhere that has yoga, I like to do yoga with others. Kundalini, I love it. I love the, you know, the Kundalini experience is like without introducing pharmaceuticals or plant medicines, uh, sort of, you know, I, I, and there are certain types of breath work because I know you're familiar with Wim Hof and stuff, but I like the Kundalini experience. I've had moments of cessation of self, like moments of like, vroom, vroom, like, oh my God, I'm not me. And then, oh no, I am me. It's me that's remembering I'm not me. I've had that induced by Kundalini before. So I like it. I also like Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. That's why I'm a, a fan and a student of, uh, in your country, Hiron Gracie, and uh, like, uh, who is here for this workshop today. Because like, uh, and you know, elsewhere, Ricardo Wilk, and in my country, Chris, Chris Clear, all like uh, various black belts under the Gracie system because the jiu-jitsu for men, it puts you in your body, and women for anybody, I suppose, but I'm talking from a personal perspective. Like it puts you in your body. It, for me, means contact with people that's got absolutely, like this non-sexual submission. I mean, it's full of so much amazing stuff. And I'm very interested in developing that which is curious because it's like, it's like I'm a white belt. <laughs> so I'm not You're really on the other side of the room. <laughs> oh man, I'm not going to be leading that particular charge. So 
Because, you know, there was like, I think 1.5 million people in the United States anyways that, um, that got into treatment uh, for alcohol and drugs this past year. But after 60 days or so, there's 80% of those people relapse. And I wonder if you think maybe the combination of yoga, jiu-jitsu, physical practices can help sort of stem that relapse. Because I wonder where we're going wrong a bit with I the recovery. No, I don't know. I would be very open to that. And I imagine that you have done more research into that than I have. What I feel is necessary is a deep personal connection with God. And for some people, there might be people who are physically unable to do yoga and Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and why should they be excluded? And I, I, but for me, it's like, how are you going to concede to your innermost self that your construction that you've been living in is not going to work for you? Not that you're a bad person, you need to be admonished, but you've got to get deep. And part of my deal is yoga. Part of my deal is Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Like, but the only things that I would sort of with confidently pass on and inculcate is 12 steps. That's the only thing, because that's the only thing that I've 100% sort of has, like it works for me. But like, I feel that there's as many versions of recovery as there are addicts, and I think we're all addicts to some degree. And I think these 12 steps, they're like Shakespeare. They can handle interpretation. They can handle people going, well, I'm a Buddhist and I want to do it this way. Well, I'm an atheist, I want to do it this way. We're radical feminists, we want to do it this way. We're, we're, like, whatever it is you want to do, this can handle you. That's why I like it. Mm. Thank you for doing what you're doing. Well, thank you for providing this wonderful location and this wonderful platform. It's a real privilege and most serendipitous. Yeah, you're bringing a lot of people that I think would be otherwise intimidated or afraid into the fold, being able to look more deeply into themselves and find that God. Thanks, man, because I feel strongly compelled to do it in a way that's almost indistinguishable from the mad, frenzied wanting of my addiction. It's something, I want God bad, I want people to be healed, but I know, you know, that must mean there's more surrender in me yet to do. Yeah, thank you, sir. Thanks, man. I think I want to get at a different side of your character that, because... There isn't another one. But I'm you, shallow. you are not shallow. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm being silly. Because it, you, obviously you're known as somewhat gregarious, garrulous, extroverted gentleman who struts and frets his hour upon the stage, right? But I've seen another side of you. Like the other night, you interviewed Marianne Williamson, who's running for president of the United States. You were very, very gracious. And you almost... At your own, not at your own expense, but you, you allowed her to have a particular kind of moment that I felt was extremely generous, and and then I've seen you just now work through the part of the twelve step, step four, where people take this kind of rigorous inventory, and I'm just struck by kind of how gentle and empathetic and very like present and grounded um, that you are. And I, I wonder if, if you were always that way. I possibly always had that facility, but prior to working the 12 steps, it's not something that I would have recognized as an attribute. M much of the analysis that the 12 steps can provide is a 
about understanding the strategies that we develop and evolve in order to survive and succeed and perhaps the personality it could be argued is little more than a strategy a system of behaviors and traits deployed in order to meet certain circumstances or to achieve certain goals and for me that um as a performer that's the you know through performance the first time i felt validated the first time i saw potential for uh, escaping my conditions and circumstances so i think i perhaps over biased that but then and of course the lens through which most people experience me is as an entertainer so that's another bias it's interesting when you have a public profile to fame is nothing more than an extraction and when I read about myself, which I do a lot less these days, I feel like, well, what they're saying about me, in a, in a way, it almost says more about them. You know, mm-hmm. if someone says, mostly known for his tabloid exploits or whatever, I feel, well, you must read tabloids. <laughs> I've got no choice about whether or not I'm Otherwise, in them. Otherwise, you'd never know. <laughs> yeah, I don't choose to be in them, but they choose to read them. So it's more <laughs> more telling. Um, so, uh, but regardless, so I think a degree of it is the the fact that the lens and mechanic through which we receive personalities, celebrity, entertainment, is biased towards that kind of extroversion, and. But to be you know, honest and plain, I've changed and come to value the a more, I don't know, passive, reflective aspect of my nature. More, mm. feel less afraid of it. Yeah, okay. is that gratifying? Do you like being in that place? Yeah, I didn't like like a lot of people that have had addiction issues. There's an inability to recognise serenity and calm. People, addicts, quite commonly sort of motivated towards states of extreme depression and sadness and fear excitement agitation elation and not like i didn't really recognize serenity i still sometimes if i'm just in a situation where all that's required of me is that i sit in a room feel a bit fearful like like, oh, i should be doing something something should happen now i should be feeling a more profound identifiable vacillating feeling Right. There's some quote, all of men's problems can be traced to his inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Yeah. But you, but you sit every day quietly. Do you, there's a Melville quote I've always liked, the, the one and only voice of God is silence. Mm. And I, I've heard you talk a lot about um, sort of our inability to that that human beings are limited by their five senses to kind of understand reality, understand the world, and that in many ways our senses kind of lie to us. Um, and that silence is sort of this one kind of godlike thing that we as human beings can somehow grasp at because silence is has no beginning, it has no end, it's infinite, it has no time, it has, it's outside of time and space, it has no form, it has no location. So in some ways it feels a bit like a portal to God. Is that how you treat it? Do you have any s- 
What's your relationship with silence? Through meditation, there is a relationship with silence, but the way that I continue to experience meditation is I primarily note disturbance out at like for me the experience of meditating I sit down I think okay right mantra and then I'm aware of becomes acutely aware of any external noise and that I'll have to let go of that and then in the internal noise of uh, in a monologue narrative thinking the way I was taught to meditate by Bob Roth from the David Lynch Foundation he continues to reiterate because I suppose I continue to resist it thought is part of meditation there will be thought you have to let go of the striving you innocently undertake meditation you return to the mantra it doesn't have to be pronounced or aggressive sometimes it's very faint and barely there at all you don't you let go of the idea that there's something that's going to be achieved because you see because I'm again this is why the 12 steps important to me I receive most things through the lens of addiction I'm even when meditating the I'm trying to attain escape and numbness Mm. like and transcendence can feel like we know escape and numbness there's the absence of self when there are the moments when meditation is inverted comma successful although that flies in the face of everything i've been taught and told it's oh wow i'm not here anymore mm-hmm. that's cool which we only know afterwards of course but you know how i've been taught is well even when you're there and you just think you're sat with your eyes shut and you're just thinking about the past or the future or you're projecting if you are you know consciously returning to the mantra in an unhurried unflustered way whenever you notice you're not thinking the mantra your body is healing the you are getting the rest you know they kind of the way i've been taught meditation it's in a sense quite perfunctory in some ways you know like a lot of the people that practice it like say jerry seinfeld or like Howard stern i feel like there's a lot of and, and this is obviously how they've been taught, you know, from the Maharishi ultimately, or, you know, at least in terms of its Western um, practice. That's what they've been taught. They've been taught that it's a kind of tool. And I suppose all spirituality could be regarded as utilitarian, but I'm, I crave, I like the mystery. I'm interested in shamanism i like voluptuousness i think you know like while i you know that as you've said about the senses and like the, the acknowledgement of their limitations and that they're pathways and that they can be illusory and that they can be misleading and by virtue of the fact that they're necessarily limited the information that you're getting is collated curated bounded and that there is the unbounded there is the limitless there is limitlessness i still am even in meditative practice, I want some kind of, I don't know, some escape, <laughs> some <laughs> sensual thing, yeah. sort of. It's, it's, it's interesting. But, you know, there are times when I feel like I've meditated and it goes how I would have it go, which is absence of thought, absence of self. And it's I feel like, well, God, why would I ever do anything else? This is bliss. This is what I was looking for as a drug addict or through promiscuity, or 
you know, I want to be free of the self. And I think that that's telling that the drive behind addiction is a kind of self annihilation. Mm-hmm. It is all, it has always been a spiritual problem, even in less extreme situations or less extreme demonstrations, people drink because they want to feel good they eat foods that are bad for them because they want to feel good they watch porn or movies because they want to feel good that's for me that's a spiritual issue you're trying to make yourself feel better and we will settle for pleasure and in this uh silent practice you know either you have freedom from that you have freedom from that impulse do you feel that we're kind of as a society we're stuck in this kind of enlightenment era concepts of reason and rationality and individualism that has sort of taken over it has subdued the more spiritual or even christian notion in this country of of all men being created equal it's a very kind of christian notion of you know god sees everyone's soul as equal and there's been this kind of dialectic, I would say just in the modern world in general, between that notion of equality, compassion, and then this kind of drive for individualism and, I suppose, on some level, commercialism. Like, where did we lose our way? When you think of, when I think of science and the scientific method, it's defining edict could be that it's about veracity, truth for experimentation. This is not opinion, this is truth. We've experimented double-blind. These are facts, we can measure it, we can observe it. Stop trying to counter that with your bizarre, psychedelic, shamanic love of the light and the Lord and your woo-woo emotionalist, feminine (laughs) crap. (laughs) But this is an ideal of science that science is about neutral experimentation. There is no science that's conducted that does not pass through the consciousness of the observer. Mm -hmm. And even more so in practice, there is no science that is undertaken that is free from the imperatives of the people that are funding that experimentation. You need to glance only at the pharmaceutical industry to see the way that in practice science functions so so for me you know like no one's querying the value of material experimentation observation uh, accessing information trying to understand the, the the material physical world this is like of course brilliant and necessary the problem for me is that science in the same way that religion has previously done uses its highest ideals to dominate territories that are none of its business when it doesn't live up to those ideals in practice. Mm -hmm. Because the fact is is that the pharmaceutical industry or the food industry or the tech industry or the energy industry present truths that are convenient to the interests of the powerful and obscure truths that are not. And in even if one could conceive of a pure version of neutrally observed science, it still is passing through the consciousness of individuals. It still exists in this sensual and sensory realm. You know, only the things that there are words for are being said, only the things that are measurable are being measured. 
the idea that the idea for me that the amount of intelligence that human beings have and the sensory instruments that we have and their ability to read information are equal to the total potential for information is ridiculous. That's the sort of yeah. mistake. We know when we look back and laugh and go, oh, they thought the world was flat. Oh, they thought the, the sun went around the earth. That's, these were, that was based on study at that point. So now yeah. everything that we assume is based on study. This is, there is never the apex of revelation. There will continue to be revelation. There will continue to be new information. There will, the rules of physics, localized patterns they will ultimately say, oh, no, there's an, uh, there are adjacent realms, adjacent dimensions. There, there's different ways of regarding rea- the real. Yeah, and I mean, we can even see that actually Deepak talks about this, uh, essentially, our spatial limitations. Mm. Like, uh, he often refers to the painted lady butterfly that has 30,000 lenses. What does the world look like to a, through 30,000 lenses? Or that they taste with their feet. What does that look like yeah how can we ever understand that that. experience the awareness the beingness these other realms of reality don't exist seems like crazy i mean even just a horse can only see in blue and green you know i mean what is that what does the world look like to a horse you know our lyrics to their rainbow song (laughs) (laughs) i feel blue for them green Green. blue and green green. (laughs) that's it that's it um I feel bad for them. But um, so the notion that this, that the only thing that is real is what we can see, touch, feel here. I mean, what's the poet? I think it was a Brit. He said, we're led to believe a lie when we see with and not through the eye that was born in a night just to perish in a night while the soul slept bathed in beams of light. It's just that this, we are so connected to what we can see and touch and connect and and think that that we can solve our discontents by by feeding those senses yes. that we've we've lost ourselves i wonder if and i you know when i i was listening to you interview marianne and there was uh you know there was a lot interesting topics that came up you know um, like reparations, for example, she talks about, you know, how do we make reparations for slavery? And, you know, I started thinking of like, hmm, is there, can the 12-step program be applied collectively? Could you, could we sit here as Americans or as Brits or whatever and be like, take a thorough inventory of, of all of our resentments, make amends for everything that we've fucked up. I mean, have, have you ever seen the 12-step be applied outside of, like, individually? Does that work? It's applied collectively in 12-step support groups. Mm. That The idea being that collectively there is a power, the power of our shared intention to overcome self-centeredness the root of the condition of addiction and for me the point where obvious forms of addiction intersect with all attachment we not everyone has been addicted to crack but everybody is using external and material phenomena to ameliorate inner malady we're doing things to make ourselves feel better and so there are 
groups. Curiously, there are the accompaniment to the 12 steps, the 12 traditions uh, in most 12-step groups are used to, uh, uh, which I would not be able to say whether or not I belong to, due to those traditions. They would say that each group is fully autonomous, the groups are leaderless, groups cannot, they're, they're, uh, they're fully self-supporting. Mm-hmm. Now, what's, what's, one of the things I deeply admire about the structure of 12-step communities is the way that leadership is regarded as a position of service, that, le- that there is absolute and real democracy known as the group conscience that no individual can say we're going to do this that everything is determined democratically and importantly there are the size of groups is somewhat managed you know like i mean there are some groups one understands that are up to 500 or a thousand people and somewhere it's two or three but all of those groups are independent all those groups are autonomous all those groups are free to govern themselves according to their own group conscience and i feel that perhaps you know when i'm having conversations about politics and political change i feel like why are we having this conversation with the handbrake on with regard to of course we're not going to consider anything like decentralizing (laughs) the sovereignty of the united states of america or the uk that's a given that's staying we're having a stratified society based on (laughs) where ultimately government is in the service of corporations i feel that why be bold what is it like you know if ultimately what we are trying to achieve is uh for communities and individuals a connected and actualized life where we are as free as possible, where we are as free from suffering as possible. Let's consider anything that might be an obstacle to that as something that could change. Hmm. Where, yeah. like, again, that Gandhi quote, mate, there's no point in us kicking the British out of India if we just replicate the systems that they held over us, which is obviously what happened when the Indians did kick the British out, which I think was a mistake in retrospect. <laughs> we made the trains run on time. Yeah. And also, like, you know, like the, he said, like with anarchic foresight, India is a country of 70,000 villages. They should all be fully autonomous, trading with one another, providing for themselves where possible. Like he was arguing for decentralization. Now, whether you're like approaching politics from a socialist or you know, capitalist perspective, no one is querying the earth is primarily a resource. Mm-hmm. Every, our job here is to maximise the efficacy of the planet. We're just talking about how to distribute the spoils of plundering the planet. Gandhi, in the same speech, said, at some point, and this is obviously in the 40s, at some point we're going to have to let go of our infatuation with trinkets and objects and gadgets. Hmm. We're pressing it. It's unbelievable because they didn't have iPhones, obviously. Did you know back then the iPhones were made of wood and they ran on steam? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's about just the time. You know, we, I think the last period in this country where there was actually a moment that we connected to this notion of common good or common destiny was sort of at the end of World War II where, you know, we came back and, you know, there was this sort of chicken in every pot mentality and, and we took 7 million GIs and we said, okay, you know, we're going to educate them. And, you know, through all of these New Deal measures, it was like, yeah, well, there should be a safety net to dull the sharper edges of capitalism because, you know, people are left behind. And 
and there was all you know the rise of unions and and a graduated income tax and all of these as progressive policies that kind of harkened back to the notion of the common good, we the people. Um, but since then, then you know essentially all these GIs came back. And then we grew this middle class that essentially built picket fences literally around their house. They locked their doors. And there's been this kind of like efflorescence of individual materialism ever since with maybe one little wave that happened in the 60s and 70s with some experimental living around shared resources. But like what is going to unfuck us, you know, in that sense? To your point about whether or not the 12 steps could be applied on a social, indeed national or international level for a moment, accepting terms like nation and <laughs> internation, right. uh, we could say, is is this a problem? Step one, is this a problem? Now, a lot of people, this is not a problem. This is not a problem if you are, uh, well, it, you know, like we would argue from a sort of a, uh, ultimately from a spiritual position that we're just quarreling about what type of prison you want to be in a lovely ornate prison or like a, a Maharishi said you know the man in the mansion and the man in the cage compared to the man in the cage the man in the mansion is relatively free right. but of course, when we talk about uh, when we talk about uh, change we when we uh, the application of the twelve steps to a social situation would be: Is this a problem? Is it a problem that we're living a life that where we just accept that your role is to be utilised as a kind of a unit of energy yeah. that contributes to that system? Is it is it possible? Then the second step is: Is it possible that they can <laughs> say, yeah, that is a problem that we're just regarded as an object? No wonder there's the intersex objectification because everything is objectified, everything is commodified. If you can't contribute, if you can't produce, you will end up homeless on the street. You, if you can't perform, if you like seem to be mentally ill, if you can't appear, uh, live in accordance with certain values and ideals established not in a vacuum, but in order to create a society that maintains certain structures and maintains certain privileges. So if you, one, think that's a problem, which, you know, there's no problem for me doing that. Two, can you believe it's possible that a power greater than yourself can restore you to sanity? Is it possible that there's a, a different America waiting to be born that may not even bear that name, let alone that flag? The, I invite people to ask, how, what is your investment? What is your investment? What is it giving you? You know, Or is it just a reappropriation of your n natural and necessary tribal instinct reappropriated and attached to a, essentially an economic and ideological entity that doesn't care about you? Mm. What is the point? The third step, are you willing to ask for help? Now, you know, the, there's a pragmatic understanding of step three. Uh, you know, when replied to addiction, people that have gone through chemical dependency and are now not chemically dependent can offer help and solution to people that are still struggling with it. But there is a mystical aspect, you know, as literally written, to, made a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understand God. Now, this is where I believe it refers back to the stuff we were talking about earlier. What's happening to us in that silence? Is there something beyond your experience as an individual that could be instantiated in our social systems? Is there oneness? Why do these ideas of fraternity, as it would be explained in socialism, brotherhood, as it would be described in Christianity, oneness, as it would be described in Hinduism and Buddhism, why do these ideas recur? Why do they seem so relevant? What is love other than the acknowledgement of our ultimate unity and the illusion of separation, mm. an energetic experience of this oneness? Mm. 
if these things are real but don't seem as real as a dollar bill how can we prioritize them how can we accelerate their value how can we present to people these ideas as the fulcrum and spine of a new system mm. how can we do it perhaps by helping them to understand that the, that the situation they're living in is problematic that it is possible for it to change and that together we can achieve that change why limit the conversation to i'd like that person in that hat to be in charge of this of this particular system yeah and do you think that that will require a, essentially a transcendent messenger or i think it will require a transcendent message because as a narcissistic show-off there's been times in my life where um like for example when i was involved in politics in the uk right there was this thing i said once on the tv where like i was on a, a, a show that's a bit like 60 minutes in your country where it's, it's called news night dum, dum, dum. Mm. this is serious we're very, talking about very, the news yep. <laughs> that kind very, of very thing. some bombast and some graphics yep. and i said like and the person you know because the right to vote has caused such obvious suffering and suffrage saying that there's no point in voting when the two parties are not significantly different like I heard it said recently, on every single thing that the, that the two dominant parties agree, you essentially have no choice. <laughs> like <laughs> if, if find so if find everything that the Democrats and the Republicans agree right. on on those subjects, you have no choice. None of them are saying let's completely reconfigure the way this country works. Now, like I mean, I suppose at the moment because we are seeing a rise of sort of ethno nationalism and certain type of right wing politics, that there is a sort of a populist leftist. Uh, dialectic comparable to it so like it's there is more polarity than there was even five years ago when it you know we were not talking about candidates like Bernie Sanders or uh, Jeremy Corbyn so it's seven or eight years ago I don't know when it was that I did this I'm not very good with remembering stuff all I know is the dude that was running the Labour Party weren't that different from the dude that was running the Conservative <laughs> yeah. Party yeah. and the person that was running the Democratic Party that they basically all kind of looked the same and sort of were the same and the the interest behind them weren't really going to water anyway I said that stuff I said there's no point voting no I've never voted in my life no one I know or where I'm from votes because we all know it's bullshit and it caused like <laughs> terrible ramifications oh it's irresponsible people died for that vote well as i'm not saying that voting should mean nothing i'm saying it does mean nothing it should mean something it should be an opportunity for people to participate in democratic process anyway so you know like it caused a real stir but the mistake i made was because a lot of people were very very supportive of him so look look at what he's actually saying he's not saying that democracy is bad he's not saying don't vote he's saying that there is no point in voting because of the lack of a realistic alternative. Right. Now, because a lot of people agreed with that, uh, I um, felt real buzzed up and like I was kind of important for saying it. And I didn't realise until a little bit later, slightly too late as it turns out, that no, all that happens is occasionally you say something that is resonant and true and you'll hear it reflected back at you. Mm. If that happens the important thing is to recognize that the thing that's important is the truth, not the person that is saying it. Because if you happen to be the person that's saying it, you may spiral off into that narcissism again. <laughs> That'll never happen. I know, you wouldn't think so. Do you think that change, though, is not going to come from inside politics? How can it? How can it, really? 
is that that's my sort of general feeling is that yeah. well and why should it why bother yeah. why bother go well let's restrict ourselves to these methods why are we all pretending that you need sort of centralised parliamentary democracies so that someone on horseback can travel back to go, right, we've passed this in Congress. <laughs> it's like you would acknowledge that everyone could be voted on a device that's in their pocket, mm. <laughs> like on every single issue. Bring uh, In terms of politics, which are really just the organisation of resources and power, the people affected by the consequences of that power should have as much control of it as possible. So control the budgets of their communities, control their schools, their hospitals, their roads. Centrists on the left and right will immediately say, well, what do you do about municipality and law enforcement and international war and terror? Look how quickly they jack up the fear. (laughs) (laughs) Don't stop it. You're starting to wake up. You're starting to wake up. Have the fear back. The fear, the fear. Watch this. Here's some desire. Look at the size of those. (laughs) Wouldn't you like one of them? (laughs) You know, like the get back into the fear and desire. It's not like the, you know, the people that pretend to be the grown-ups are the least rational people encouraging us to be less and less rational, trying to keep us in unconscious states, the unconscious states of fear and desire. You know from your own life that when you're afraid or full of desire, you're not thinking right. People can scare me enough that I'll do something stupid. People can fill me with desire enough that I'll do something stupid. I know how susceptible I am to that as an individual. Um, these we see these frequencies continually broadcast to maintain and sustain those states in people so that they can't go well why shouldn't i like you know whether it's from a libertarian or anarchist perspective i don't fucking give 50 percent of my money to them i don't agree with them like and some people will moralize about tax no we should be giving a helping one of course we should be helping one another i say as close as possible replicate the conditions to which human beings were designed to live in i don't mean a cave without access to phones or medicine i mean tribal groups of about 75 to 150 people where they're fully autonomous there is so much part of the problem i think in the world now is that you know the genie's out of the bowl some people want to live fundamentalist islamic lives some people want to live sexual libertarian lives some people want to live christian lives atheist lives well why should we house all these ideas let people live how they want to live stop centralizing and umbrellaing and doming these groups of people because it makes economic sense to a one particular elite or group. Where possible, mm. full automi- uh, or, or automation. And where not possible, at least the acknowledgement. The acknowledgement of what is really going on. It's not like when people say, no, there's no alternative, there's no other way of doing this. It's because this works well for the people saying that. That's right. May I be so bold to say that that you would play a very that you could play a very powerful role as that messenger to help change the frequency at which people live is that something that i mean i know you're not striving for that you're just being you but is that part of your mission in life i don't know what these drives are jeff they're driving me mad like the (laughs) craving the driving the you know, like it's always been there. And first mm-hmm. of all, it was I want loads of attention, and then I want loads of sex, I want loads of drugs, and then back to the sex again, then the fame, then the money, then like now, p- 
because I have a program, because I live a spiritual life, the drive itself, the craving itself is neither good nor bad. In fact, we could argue from a spiritual perspective that what it ultimately wants is love and oneness. What's it trying to get to? Someone told me all desire, the inappropriate substitute for the desire to be at one with God. So the question Mm. I continually ask myself as an individual is, what is your intention in this moment? Where are you trying to get to? And so often for me, mate, what I have to be careful about is I want privilege. I want power. So like you know, there's no point complaining about Donald Trump cause, just because you want to be him or you want to replace him or complaining <laughs> about some sort of yeah. sexy famous movie star because you want to replace them or be them. So in a sense, by, um, for me, I have to focus on being free of my own defects of character, my own flaws, which I can only do intermittently. So it's important that I'm part of a collective so that the other empowered people in the collective that I participate in can say, I think, Russell, you did brilliant there. That was a lovely speech. Well done. But it seems now, look, you've drifted back into the narcissism. <laughs> look at you. You're grandstanding. You know, like, so I don't think it's necessary to have stratified societies or the, the, the sort of those kind of hierarchies the, the, particularly not those that deify, rarefy and worship an individual. But even though I love all that stuff, I love an icon, I love an idol, I love Muhammad Ali, Gandhi, Che Guevara, and I know there's bad things you could say about every single one of those men. What I like about them is the things that they did that were amazing and incredible, overcoming the odds, overcoming great power, overcoming tyranny, the circumstances of their lives. Of course, they were flawed and there's some pretty extreme stuff went down with all of those guys I would say to varying degrees um, but for me the, we we replicate we continually replicate certain ideas that kind of have a hold on us you know we and mm. anybody in a position of power I think is vulnerable to the to the predilections of the powerful so like the, one of the things I like about the traditions around 12 step uh, support groups is that you acknowledge that all people are flawed and you don't ever put anyone in a position where they can damage the whole. The the collective, the value of the collective is everything. Mm. So, you know, that's I, I think that is vital. Yeah, I've heard you say the opposite of addiction is connection. It's a beautiful thought. Yes, yeah, so I suppose in addiction we are striving to make up for this absence. It could be regarded as a spiritual connection or something more, more pragmatic and mm-hmm. certainly it can be practically addressed. Connection to other people in a group, service to other people, helps me to be free of the self-centeredness that otherwise governs me. Mm-hmm. You're a beautiful man, Russell. Thank you, my You're friend. so lovely to say that to me. Thank you. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening to my conversation with the brilliant Russell Brand. To keep abreast of Russell, visit him at russellbrand.com and listen to his podcast, Under the Skin, available on Luminary. If you're interested in trying Russell's recovery course for free for six days, go to onecommune.com recovery and leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice and never hesitate to send me an email at jeffk at onecommune.com. I read every single one. That's it from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for
for you. Yeah.